Good morning. Great to see you on this snowy morning. So we got back uh, from Israel yesterday at noon, got back to my house at uh, two. So it was an interesting service last night. I was pretty uh, jet lagged, only said a few things that I regret, uh, but we uh, really had a good trip. Thanks for uh, praying for us. Uh, There was uh, 54 of us uh, that that went and God really had his hand uh, on us um, and really neat work that he did in our lives uh, spiritually. Just you can't really replace it uh, being on site where these things uh, took place and studying uh, the word together. So it's great to be back. Missed you guys. Appreciate Matt teaching last weekend and Dan and David teaching on Wednesday night. So Let's stand together, and as you're standing, let's turn to John chapter 8. We're in John chapter 8. We're going to be looking at the first 12 verses. John 8, and then we will pray uh, together. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your love for us. And when uh, we deserve judgment, that you choose to give us grace in your Son. And on this uh, snowy morning as we gather, we know that there's a work that you want to do in our lives. So would you send your Holy Spirit to lead us and guide us in truth and teach us. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can have a seat. So important in John 7 and John 8 to remember that this is taking place at the Feast of Tabernacles. The Feast of Tabernacles was about two things. The first was remembering God providing water in the wilderness supernaturally from the rock. And the end of chapter 7, the last day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried out and said that he was living water and that any who come to him would become a reservoir of living water uh, to others. But the second thing that they would focus on was light, remembering how God had given a pillar of fire in the wilderness for uh, the children of Israel every evening. So Christ is fulfilling the Feast of Tabernacles and declaring that he is both the light and the living water. In just being over in Israel this week, it really stood out to me how significant Jerusalem is and how significant the temple is to uh, the Jewish people, even to, to this day. And geographically, if you look at a topographical map of Israel, there's tremendous elevation gain when you come to Jerusalem, no matter what direction you're coming from. You're going to come up to uh, Jerusalem, and then the Temple Mount sits on Mount Moriah, this, this mountain range, this, this plateau. And the children of Israel would come together for these feasts, and they were a huge, huge deal for the children of Israel. But Jesus' ministry was primarily in the Sea of Galilee. In fact, did you know there's only two miracles that Jesus did in Jerusalem, and they're both in the Gospel of John. The first was Jesus healing the paralytic on the Sabbath day, and that caused those that wanted to kill Jesus to begin their plans. And then the second was Jesus healing the blind man that we'll look at at chapter 9. So the Feast of Tabernacles is taking place. It's just ended. And we pick up in verse 53 of chapter 7. And everyone went to his own house. The Feast of Tabernacles is done. People go back to their own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. If my right hand was the Temple Mount, then there is the Kidron Valley that is a small valley, and the base of it is the Garden of Gethsemane, 
which is also the base of the Mount of Olives. So Jesus comes down from the temple, comes to the Garden of the Gethsemane, and then up the Mount of Olives. Now, it sounds really big, but it's super close together. You could easily make this walk in 10 minutes. When Christ was in a place where he was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, Judas says, I know that Jesus is going to be in the garden because he often goes there to pray. I think that Christ is spending time at the Mount of Olives because he's in prayer. So much of his ministry, his life, was that he would take time alone to be with the Lord in prayer. From the Mount of Olives, you can look right down onto uh, the Temple Mount. A lot of pictures that you see of Jerusalem with the Dome of the Rock— The Muslim mosque that now sits on the Temple Mount is from the Mount of Olives. What are two other things that Christ does at the Mount of Olives? He ascends after his resurrection to go back to be with the Father. And then the promise of his second coming, he's going to land upon the Mount of Olives. I think probably the most valuable piece of land on the planet right there, the Mount of Olives. When we were there this week, it's like I could just camp out here forever. I'm just going to wait right here for you. The disciples felt the same way, and that's when the angel was like, no, you've got work to do. So, so Christ spends the evening at the Mount of Olives, and then early in the morning, he came again into the temple, and all of the people came to him and sat down and taught them. So the feast is done, but the interest in Jesus is not. And as he's in the temple, he's teaching. People are gathering around Christ to hear him teach and being encouraged and nourished by his teaching. But there's this undercurrent of those that want to destroy Christ. There's the the undercurrent of those that want to, to kill him that was taking place. And we see that coming to the surface. Then the scribes and the Pharisees brought to him a woman caught in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman was caught in adultery in the very act. I've got a question. Where's the guy? Last time I checked, it takes two to tango. It takes two to commit adultery, but there is only the woman that has been brought. Now, this is very public. This is the temple. This is not just a particular synagogue, which would be bad enough, but this is where worship is centralized for the children of Israel at a very busy time at the end of the Feast of, of Tabernacles. And Christ is teaching. There's a group that's gathered together around Christ's teaching. And here comes the scribes and the Pharisees that want to destroy Jesus. And they're bringing in a woman who is, is caught in uh, adultery. How would it feel to, to be this woman? To have your sin exposed in, in this type of way? And to some degree, we're all the woman that's caught in adultery. We've all sinned in a way that would cause for us to receive punishment from from the law. Jesus really heightened the standard of the law, and he looks at our hearts with the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount. He says, if you've had lust in your heart, that you've committed adultery. If you've had anger in your heart, you have committed murder. We all could be brought before a group like this and have our our sin be publicly known. And it does show us that even though this is being done in an unjust way, they clearly have a motivation to try to destroy Christ. 
Sin does get exposed, doesn't it? We tend to think that we can hide sin, that we can cover sin, that it's going to be our secret, that nobody's going to know, that our spouse or our kids or close friends, they won't know of our sin, but Jesus told us we can't hide, that everything that's done in private will be eventually announced from the rooftop. David thought that he could cover his sexual sin committed adultery with Bathsheba, had Uriah, her husband, murdered, but God knew. God saw David's sin. Even though no one else knew, the Lord sends Nathan, the prophet, who confronts David and says, David, you are that man. In Proverbs 28, verse 13, it says, he who covers his sin will not prosper. If we're in this business of trying to cover our tracks, We're not going to prosper. But it goes on to say, whoever confesses and forsakes their sin will find mercy. In the book of Acts, it tells us that there is a time of refreshing that comes with repentance. God loves you. He loves me enough to allow our sin to be exposed. So why wait until you're exposed? Much better to confess and forsake sin, to acknowledge it before God, acknowledge it before others, and allow the Lord to do that work of of restoration. So sin will be exposed. In verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned, but what do you say? They said this testing him, that they might have something of which to accuse him, but Jesus stooped down and wrote on the ground with his finger as though he didn't hear. They're right. The law does say in Deuteronomy twenty-two, twenty-two, if someone's caught in adultery, that both parties are to be stoned. The man and the woman are supposed to be stoned. But their motivation is to test Christ, to have opportunity to uh, accuse Jesus. They're thinking, if Jesus doesn't stone her, then we're going to have some ammunition that is against Christ. Christ doesn't enter into the question. He simply gets down to the ground and he begins to write on the ground and they begin to persist and they continue to ask and he's acting as though he didn't hear him. So when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. Jesus confronts them and says, if you're without sin, then you be the first one to throw the stone. Not only will sin be exposed, but there's always going to be those that are accusers of sin. These scribes and these Pharisees, they're not seeing their own sin, but they're seeing the, the sin of this woman that's caught in adultery. Who is the ultimate accuser of sin? Satan. He's the accuser of the brother in day and night. And he's going to come in this same tone, this tone of condemnation, that there's no forgiveness for you. There's no way God could love you. There's no way out. There's no chance of change. And we need to be careful. Are we hearing the voice of conviction of the Holy Spirit that brings us to Christ? Or are we hearing the voice of, of condemnation? Also, I don't know about you, but I don't want to be a scribe and a Pharisee. I don't want to be in this business of condemning others. Even when we're told to confront sin as brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We're told to do it in a spirit of meekness, of gentleness, considering ourselves lest we fall, fall into sin. Removing the log that's in our own eye before we go to remove the speck in someone else's eye. Not coming in a place of condemnation, but coming in a place of, of restoration. Jesus is pointing out to these scribes and these Pharisees, if, if you want to be the judge, then you have to be without sin. And are of any of you without sin? Go ahead. Go ahead, stone her. Fulfill Deuteronomy twenty two twenty two. But the judge has to be without sin. And again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. We don't know the specifics of what Jesus wrote, but we know the effect that it had. It hit their conscience. They realized their own sin, that they weren't worthy to be able to stone this woman. And the scripture is specific that from the oldest to the youngest, that they went out one by one. It seems as though what Christ was writing is very specific to the oldest, then to the next oldest, to the next oldest. And even by Christ doing this, he's showing, I know you. <laughs> I know your birthday. I checked your Facebook account, right? <laughs> he, he's God. He, he knows. Maybe he wrote down a time and place and a particular man's name and, and He's like, oh, yep, that, that's me. And he puts his stone down. And the next, and he puts, puts his stone down. What's interesting is we look in the Old Testament and we see where has the hand of God been used to write before? When God gave the first copy of the law to Moses, he wrote it with his own hand. I wonder how his penmanship was, right? I picture it being in cursive, just traditional, right? but he wrote it with his own hand. The king Belshazzar in Babylon has a huge party, a drunken feast, and he gets these vessels that were important to be used in worship in the temple. They were set apart. But when Babylon took Israel captive, they also took these articles from the temple. Very sacred from God's perspective, and now they're using them in this party. And all of a sudden, this giant hand begins to write on the wall. Imagine this morning if we just saw a huge hand writing on the wall. And the writing was meeny, meeny, tekel you farson. Daniel comes and gives the meaning of that, that you've been found, you've been weighed in the balances and found lacking. Both times that God wrote, it was in judgment. But now we see Jesus writing in his grace. Writing down these, these things in his grace. The law brings judgment, but gr grace comes through Christ. So if you're taking notes this morning, write these three things down about Christ. This is number one. You ready? Jesus is our defense. Jesus is our advocate. He's our defense. No one is standing up for this woman. No one's saying, hey, well, where's the guy? No one's saying, well, there could be forgiveness for her. There's only those that are looking to stone her, but Christ is the defense, the advocate of this woman. And Christ is our advocate. He's our mediator. He's our intercessor. He goes before us on behalf of the Father and says, oh, forgive Eric. He believes in me. 
And it's so awesome to see Jesus as our defense, to see him coming in on our behalf to make a legal case for us that we would be forgiven before the Father. Do you picture Jesus this way in regards to your sin? Do you picture him being gracious and being your defense? Or do you picture him being upset at you and just waiting to bring judgment upon you? Do you picture Jesus in this way in regards to others when you're exposed to their sin, that Jesus is their defense? That he's standing up on their behalf when others are coming around them and and wanting to bring uh, condemnation upon them. This is so powerful that Jesus would do this on behalf of this lady who is caught in adultery. In verse 10, and Jesus had raised himself up and sought no one but the woman. He said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? So everyone has gone, and he says, where are your accusers? Where is that that voice of condemnation? Christ, in his defense, he silences our accusers. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. Point two about Jesus. Jesus is our forgiveness, and he is our freedom. Jesus is our forgiveness, and he is our freedom. He says, neither do I condemn you. To what degree did Jesus go to so that we could have forgiveness? He went to the cross. He's nailed to the cross so instead of judgment, he could offer forgiveness to us. To what degree does God forgive us? He's removed our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. Did God forgive this woman 80%? And then he was going to wait and see what would happen. Does God forgive you 80%? He forgives you completely. The book of Romans puts it this way. That we're justified freely by his grace. The word justified means to be declared righteous. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ as your Savior, you are declared righteous by God. Completely forgiven. In totality, the sins of the past, the present, the future. It seems with sexual sin especially, it's very hard to receive forgiveness. It would have been difficult for this woman to receive forgiveness. She was probably feeling like, I deserve judgment. Just go ahead, throw the stones at me. You ever feel that way? Like, give me the judgment. I I deserve it. Maybe as you look at sexual sin in your life, you go, man, could God forgive me? Maybe you find yourself this morning saying, you know what, I am an adultery. And could God forgive me? Yes, absolutely. He's your, your forgiveness. Maybe you're in pornography and you're going, could God forgive me? Absolutely. As you come to him, he can forgive you. He has the power and the ability to forgive. But other areas of sin are hard to receive forgiveness as well. Maybe it's anger or bitterness, or, or covetousness, and we're going, could God really forgive me? Does he forgive me as a believer? Yes, he does. He is our forgiveness. When we're struggling to receive God's forgiveness, we're struggling to see the worth of his sacrifice. Is this forgiveness because this woman is worthy, or because Christ is worthy? It's because Christ is worthy. We get it mixed up. It's not based on me. It's based on what Christ has, has done. 
It's the depth and the width and the height and the value of his sacrifice that provides forgiveness. He says, neither do I condemn you. But then also he says to her, go and sin no more. He's providing freedom. He's saying with the forgiveness, there's also freedom. You don't have to continue in this path anymore. You don't have to continue in this sexual sin. Go your way and sin no more. How simple is that? But how profound is that? And that's the life of Christ. He forgives us as we come into relationship with him. And then he says, look, you don't have to go down the path of anger anymore. You don't have to go down the path of sexual sin anymore. You don't have to go down this road of bitterness and drugs and alcohol and the abuse of of substances. Go and sin no more. I love it to see people come to know Christ as their savior. And as they experience the grace of God and the forgiveness of God and a relationship with God, then Jesus starts to lead them in this new path. And they begin to express, man, I don't want to live this way anymore. This brought destruction in my life. This this was darkness. and, And Christ has a whole new path for me. As we celebrated communion, or excuse me, baptism, what does it represent? is that we're buried with Christ and risen in newness of life. The penalty of sin's been paid for, but also the power of sin has been broken to where we no longer have to be slaves to sin. God says that the old man's been buried with Christ and we're risen in newness of life. And we're to reckon the old man dead. We're to do the math and go, I know that my sinful nature is buried with Christ and I can go my way and sin no more. Jesus is our forgiveness and he's our freedom. But verse 12, then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Notice that Jesus spoke to them. So he's speaking to the woman, but now he's speaking to everyone who is there. This is a public event. Christ is teaching. The scribes and the Pharisees interrupt it. And he's saying, guys, this is a lesson for all of us. I'm the light of the world. Jesus has just brought the light of his love into this woman's life. And he declares to all, I'm the light of the world. This would have been a powerful moment of teaching for everyone who is listening. They're realizing, man, I have darkness in my life. I have sin in my life. This lady was just exposed. And realizing, wow, Christ forgives me as well and has a better way for me to live as well. The statement of I am goes back to the book of Exodus where Moses had killed an Egyptian because he was standing up for a Hebrew slave, fled for his life, finds himself as a shepherd in the wilderness. God appears to him through a burning bush. The bush is on fire, but it's not being consumed. Calls Moses to go back to Egypt to confront Pharaoh, let my people go. Moses wants to know the name of him who's sending him, the character and nature of the one who's sending him. And God said, I am that I am. And Jesus now is filling in the blank. I am what? I am the bread of life, Christ has already declared. Now I am the light of the world. And there's seven I am statements in the gospel of John. This is incredible. This is life-changing. That Christ is our transformation. 
that he's our forgiveness, he's our freedom, but he's our transformation. His light can conquer our sexual sin. His light can conquer our anger. His light can conquer you. You fill in the blank of the sin struggle. He's the light of the world. How do you overcome the darkness? You turn on the light. And it gets very practical for us here. I think Jesus is filling in details of what does it mean to go your way and sin no more? How do you go your way and sin no more? He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. This woman on her own can't just go her way and sin no more. But she's invited into relationship. Follow me. Whoever follows me will have the the light of life. And this is where we experience victory in our lives. Is to confess sin, receive forgiveness. But to walk in freedom is to follow Christ. It's always a a challenge and a battle for who's in control. Am I going to be in control or is in Christ going to be in control? Please hear this. You can go to counseling. You can meet with a pastor. You, you can have a mentor. You can read books. You can study your Bible. You can come to church on Sunday morning. Shoot, come Wednesday night as well. And have no life change. Simply get to the place where you're red in the face and your counselor's red in the face and your pastor's red in the face and your spouse is red in the face and continue in a lifestyle of sin. It takes a real encounter with Jesus Christ. It takes knowing him as your personal savior Believing and receiving his forgiveness and making the decision, I'm not going to be in control of my life and I'm going to follow him. And as we follow him and let him daily be in control of our lives, then guess what? We become fertile soil where a mentor can speak into our life, where a counselor can speak into our life, where we come to a Bible study broken and it's not just a tradition that we're doing. We're hungry to hear from the things of God. But this is a daily decision, isn't it? Because selfishness is strong. This is daily deciding, Jesus, you're wonderful. Jesus, I'm choosing to follow you. You alone have the words of life. You've forgiven me of my sins. I'm following you. Let's turn to 1 John 5, or 1 John 1, excuse me, 1 John 1 and look at verse 5. The same author, John the Disciple, expounds on this a little bit more, this concept of walking in the light. Let's actually pick it up in verse 3. This is 1 John 1, verse 3. That which we have seen and heard we declare to you, that you may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write to you, that your joy may be full. This is the message which we've heard from him, and declare to you that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him and we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. 
And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and he's just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Did you know sex is not about sex? What's it about? What is sexual sin about? It's about a relationship with Jesus. It's about fellowship with the light. How much fellowship do you have with Jesus when you're looking at pornography? Do you know anger is not about anger? It's about fellowship with Jesus. How much fellowship are we having with Jesus when we're losing our temper and getting angry at those that we love and those that God loves? Do you know bitterness is not about bitterness? It's not about the person that hurts you or hurt me. It's about Jesus. Did you know marijuana is not about Colorado? I was in a market on Friday in Jerusalem in the Jewish quarter. It was a Jewish market. And this young man asked me where I was from. He's in his early 20s. And when I told him Colorado, he just lit up and made his day. He goes, marijuana is legal there. Oh, that's so awesome. You guys can legally smoke pot, right? And I was able to share with him, no, it hasn't been a good thing for our state. It hasn't been a good thing for our, our community. Do you know drug abuse isn't about whether it's legal or not legal from the eyes of the state? I don't know about you, but as believers, um, our state is not defining what's right and wrong for us. Marijuana is about what? It's about a relationship with Jesus. And be honest, how much fellowship do you have with Jesus when you're smoking pot? Right? How much fellowship are you having with Jesus if you're abusing alcohol? All of these sins are not about the specific sin. It's about what we're missing out on, and that's with fellowship with Christ. As believers, Jesus doesn't leave us when we're in sin, and that's what's even more humbling but it hinders our fellowship with him. And what 1 John is saying is that God is light. And if we want fellowship with him, then we need to walk in the light. And thankfully, John then gives us this amazing promise from the heart of God as we realize then, oh man, here's the sin in my life that's keeping me from fellowship with God. I want to confess my sin. What does that mean? It means to agree with God. God, I acknowledge before you that this bitterness is wrong. I acknowledge before you that this sexual sin is wrong. And as we do that, then what does God promise? That he will forgive us and he'll cleanse us from righteousness. He'll wash us clean and bring us back into that place of right fellowship with him. So let's do that together this morning. Let's pray together and take some time to be honest with the Lord. Jesus, we thank you that you want to be in relationship with us, that you invite us to follow you. And we choose to just open up our hearts before you and confess our sin to you. And as God is bringing things to mind in your heart, just agree with God and confess that to him.
and receive the forgiveness of the Lord. Enter into that promise that he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We thank you, Christ, for your invitation to go and sin no more, to walk in the freedom that you have for us, to follow you. And we invite your light into our life. We pray for areas where there's been defeat, that there would be victory through the reality of you in our lives. So God, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' name.